A good haircut can be a game changer. I mean, everybody wants to look their best for those social media pics, right? So get yourself to Sport Clips at Sport Clips Haircuts. They hair do like no one else hair does. See what they did there? Not only is it the home of champion haircuts, but they've also made relaxing and unwinding the name of the game. Level up your haircut with the MVP haircut experience. It's a spa day for your follicles. Check this out. You get a seven pressure point massaging shampoo along with a perfectly steamed hot towel all while sports plays on the TV. Does it get any better than that? No. You can want it all and have it all at Sport Clips. It's a game changer. I know you have heard this before. Work smarter, not harder. Ford has heard it too. That's why the Ford F-150 truck helps you get the job done in the smartest way possible. I mean, the pro-access tailgate alone is a game changer. It improves access to the bed and cargo, which makes it easier to load in tight spaces. See? Smarter. It's also got a mobile power source in Pro Power on board, so you can power up to 7.2 kilowatts outside your F-150 truck. That is definitely working smarter. And imagine what you can do with that power at your next tailgate party. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And I've got a quick favor to ask all of you sexy beasts before we get rolling in today's show uh, with uh, Living Color. I uh, love doing this show for you twice a week, and the reason I'm able to do two episodes a week for free is thanks to all my great sponsors, and more importantly, to you for supporting the sponsors, okay? And this is where your help comes in. Podcast One and I want to make sure we have the best sponsors for Talk is Jericho, and we want to keep the commercials to a minimum as well. That's why it would be huge if you could fill out a short survey for me and this show at podcastone.com slash my survey. It's only going to take a couple minutes of your time, and it's totally anonymous. It's going to help us get the right advertising in this show so we can keep it for free for you for twice a week. So please, please help out Talk is Jericho. Take the survey. Even if you've taken it before, we really need you to take it again. Take it multiple times. It just helps me and helps this show. Once again, podcastone.com slash my survey or go to podcastone.com and click the survey banner. Thank you for doing that. Uh, Thanks for helping me out. And now coming up on today's show, the entire band, Living Color, every member, the whole band is here. Uh, Corey Glover, the singer, Vernon Reed, guitar player, bass player, Doug Wimbish, and the drummer, Will Calhoun. First time ever, all four members of a band in the studio on Talk is Jericho. And we're talking about a lot more than just their latest mixtape EP, Who Shot Ya? And their upcoming tour of Australia and New Zealand, which starts in May. Follow them on Instagram at Living Color Official or on Facebook at Living Color. And those uh, those with a U. That's the Canadian spelling, C-O-L-O-U-R. All the dates, all the tour dates, all the stuff is going to be up there. And I'll tell you this, they got some great stories about opening for the Rolling Stones, hanging out with Mick Jagger, how Mick Jagger really gave the band their start back in the day. Doug Wimbush was also almost in the Stones. And Vernon Reed was a part of Mick's solo band. He'll tell us about that. Uh, So many crazy stories. Conversation also takes a serious turn because this band is very much about social consciousness and equality. As you can imagine, they're talking about some serious issues affecting the world. Get ready, because you got some great rock and roll stories and a little bit of an education as well, something for all of us to think about. Living Color is going to be here. This, this is Talk is Jericho. 
All right, I mean, we're, we're, we're here at the Fillmore, and this, uh, this is a monumental occasion because uh, this is the biggest uh, group of guys I've ever had on my show. The, the entire lineup of Living Color is here. You haven't had this many black men in your presence in a long time. Sit this close to me. Here we go. Hey, man, I'm from Canada, and this is true, so I grew up in Winnipeg, and there was more uh, little people in my school than there was black people. That is a true story. You mean like height challenge? Yeah. Yes. Like I mean, yeah, like uh, midget. She's yeah, saying my, midget. My, my friend, my friend Hornswoggle's in the business. <laughs> it midgets. There's more. Was more midgets. That's so what that's what he's trying to say. Yeah, but I mean that's what. So to be how this many, close. Many, so there were two midgets. No, you got, black person. Yes. <laughs> you got to figure out this is Winnipeg, Canada. If you got, I'm sure you guys have played up yeah, there. Right. So it's it's a prairie. It's the it's a, a tundra. Not a lot of black dudes there. There's a few, but we had. Uh, two two midgets and one black dude <laughs> in the store. <laughs> so, is this the most unique start to an interview you guys have ever done, right? <laughs> but that's what I mean, man. So yeah, it, it, it's funny. This is a, a great collection. Every single guy from Living Color in the room. So I have only four microphones. So. <laughs> Okay, I'm not I'm, talking into the microphone. It's all right. I'm a professional. Yeah. I'm just setting up a stand here while we're talking. I got a microphone in one hand. <laughs> I'm screwing the stand in the other. I'm a true professional. It's like being in high school again. You got to set up your gear before, right, right, before right. you have yeah. the jam. Yeah. And I'm like the drummer. It always says the most shit that you got to set always. up, right? First one there, last one to leave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's, I mean, this we're talking about how you're on the road and have all the discussions that you have. And you guys have been on the road together for so many years, 20 years, 30 years. Uh, how do you, like, Corey, you said you don't stay sane when you're on the road. You don't. You don't. Right? This is, it's a weird life. If you like you live in a coffin you're like the un, like the undead yeah you live in, you're on a bus you live in this thing in this cubicle it's like 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 a sarcophagus and and then you emerge out of that and then to feast on the living exactly <laughs> exactly it's it's we're the walking dead but you know we pay, get paid a little bit better. Yeah. A little bit better. Mike, I actually like it. Hey, be, you like being on the road? <laughs> I like being on the road. Yeah, on the, he's, on the And he's crazy. See? See what I'm telling you? I enjoy it. It's balance. Drummer, though, it's right? balance. It's, How do you mean? Well, at home. How do you mean? Because <laughs> we haven't seen it. We have not seen hide nor hair of this thing that you speak of. Well, it's balance in that at home, it's a certain kind of way that you roll being a musician. You're playing locally, you're at home, you have your gear, and, you know, it, touring is a little bit more, more of an organized system it's like a regiment organized <laughs> it's kind of a regiment you have to be there a certain time you're on a bus you got deadlines things kind of move a certain way when you're home it's looser you know it's your own gear sometimes you're you waiting drive, for the tour manager to you know, tell you what time to get out of bed well i don't know i i just i like it i like touring because it's an all it's another option to mm. going out and playing versus if i was only touring i'd feel like Corey. Um, but but uh, it was nuts. Yes, that's what you're trying to say. Because Corey's crazy, right? So you no, know, it's a form of escapism. You know, we get to go out on the road, and we kind of like, you know, you leave your issues at home, right? But then they're stacked up, waiting for you when when you <laughs> yeah. get back, double time. You know what I mean? Like so a stack of bills. There's for there's you. A, there's a blessing and a curse that comes with this job, mm -hmm. in a sense. You know, it's a responsibility. But then there's the families and loved ones that we leave at home. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and then we and, and then we gotta like almost kind of. It's like you're going out of the atmosphere and then you just all of a sudden poof you're like I'm back home I gotta, mm -hmm. I gotta walk the, I gotta you walk, know, the show, walk the dog <laughs> put the trash out so yeah, that's take the care of my kids when, I, when we were doing the Stones tour we had a break we had a two week break mm. and I went home and I was living at home with my parents at the time and I walked in the door I was like a big rock star I felt like a rock star my mother handed me a bucket and a 
bucket of paint and a brush and say, go paint the stoop. <laughs> Mr. Rockstar. <laughs> right. Mr. Turin with the stone. Exactly. And there's your balance. <laughs> and now, and yeah. there's your balance. <laughs> That's exactly right. There's the there balance we're talking about. And missed the spot. And I did. <laughs> and, my, and my friends would drive by and like, ah, look at you, you stupid Rockstar. You're an asshole. And they kept driving away. And I was like, I'm, I'm sitting there painting the stoop. Yeah. Red. <laughs> red. This is red. <laughs> but red. And, and not to go into a history lesson here, but this is something I find very interesting is that basically uh, Jagger, Mick Jagger, discovered living color. Is that is that true? Well, Actually. He, and Doug was playing with, with Mick. Well, the, the, the story goes like this. I, Corey, was, Mick, oh, oh, I, I was working with Mick at the time, and, um, you know, I've known Vernon since 1980. We met uh, at a session. And um, I was living in London, working with Jeff Beck over there. We were both in Mick's solo band. Living Color was starting to really crack the scene at the time. So I'm in the studio with Mick, and Mick hears, you know, Roger Trilling and some other friends that we, you know, that we were all, you know, you know kind of like associated with, kind of like we're getting in the mix here. He's like, yo, Dougie, I've been hearing about this band, Living Color. I said, well, just so happens, you know, I'd like to go check them out. I said, well, you know, they're playing the CBGBs. Just so happened y'all were playing down there that night. Uh-huh. So the famous so, CBGBs. So Jeff Beck and, and Mick went down to go see him. And um, Jeff Beck too. That's yeah, not that's well, not intimidating. Yeah. So it that's a, not intimidating. You know, it was a funny thing because uh, our manager told me the next day. The manager, <laughs> yeah, because the managers, our managers at the time, said to me that Mick Jagger and Jeff Beck are in the in the audience, and I immediately put it out of my mind. Mm-hmm. Like my immediate thing to do was to say they're not here. That's bullshit. Because if I let it enter my mind that they were there. It would have started me down a spiral that would have just affected me. So when we hit, we hit. I literally denied it because I know how my mind is. Right, how, like, sure. Spiral. You psych yourself out. out. No, we all get it. Spiral you know, out of control with anxiety. Yes. You know, I know. My anxieties are many. Yes. Well, you know what happened after that? I mean, so they, they, they did the gig, right? Yeah. And then the next day, we're at Right Track Recording Studios. We're in the process of mix. We're mixing the process of mixing his record. Mm-hmm. So he comes to me and he goes. Dougie, I really like the band, you know, what should I do with him? I'm like, you're Mick Jagger, man. You busted all these blues. Can't <laughs> you ask, want, excuse man. my French, can I cuss on this? Absolutely. Okay. I said, you know, you're, you're Mick Jagger, man. You, know, you bust a lot of, you bust, you work a lot of blues cats and you know, you've mm-hmm. nicked a lot of blues stuff as well. So mm-hmm. take him in the studio and do something with him. Yep. And it just so happened I was, Ed Stasium was the engineer at the time. Yep. And on the weekends, the studio, the, the actual studio was free. Right. So, so Mick really? was to, to Ed Stacey was like, Ed, would you mind coming in and doing it? I want to bring Living Color in here and do a demo with the band on, on, on the weekend. Ed said, sure. Hmm. And that's how the whole process, whole process started. started. And, and Ed, you know, we, we hit it off immediately. Right. And, you know, there's a kind of funny, because at any point you can go sideways. Like at one point we had folks from Electro Records were interested in us and it went really high up and the president of Electro Records said, nope, I don't like the band. Because I sounded like well, Ben Vereen. I'll, I'll chime in on that. You know what? At he said time, you sound like Ben Vereen. Here's what happened. I'll never forget because... Sorry, Doug. Because he, he, did, he didn't like it. He sounded like he Ben Vereen. Like, he, he didn't like, he like the singer. He said, the singer sounds like Ben Vereen. It's like a Broadway it's like, yeah, like, yeah, tap. Yeah, but like, like I sound like a Broadway singer. It's like, okay. You know, Mick was trying to shop the record around mm-hmm. at first. At that time, he was signed to Walter, Walter Yetnikoff. Oh, yes. Over at mm-hmm. CBS. Mm-hmm. Epic, right? Yeah. And he was quite frustrated because it took him a while to get Living Color 
you know, kind of like placed and sight. He was pissed off. And I'll never forget the day we were in the studio. He came to me and said he was all happy. He said, yo, Dougie. I got the band signed. He got him signed. Got you guys signed to Epic. But it even took Mick Jagger a moment to make that happen. Because you know, it took a minute. It, it, took a minute. it didn't happen overnight. It did, did not. It? it did not happen. So they we went. To, we went to. We Vernon and I were, were at several meetings, like little indie record labels, all this stuff. Like, yeah, it'd be great. It'd be great. But, but it's like, yeah, it'd be great. But the three of us, the four of us at, at that time, went to a record company where a guy jumped up on the ta- jumped up on his desk, and told us how. What do I got to do to sign you guys? And then turns out he couldn't do it either. I mean, he literally jumped up on his That was desk. capital. Corey and I went in there. He did a soft shoe <laughs> and did the whole, I want to sign you guys. Why is that? Because you're talking about the late, mid, eight, late 80s. Was it because you were a guitar-driven? Was it, was it a, a no, black rock no, and roll? No, band no, thing? no. No, it was black. It was basically, it was just straight up, you know, fear of a black how planet. How, 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 right? how do we mark it? What do we do with it? Where do we put it in, in, in the bins well, at Tower Records? At that time, at that time, like, too, man, I mean, black music had a certain kind of a, it was kind of weird for us even to go to the record labels because they had black music departments, and we would really. Oh yeah, the record labels. They would. We we were we were when you go into Sony or a major label, there were black music departments. There was stuff for punk. There was stuff for jazz. It was separated. It was you you know you got off the elevator. So when I went over to the black music department on a how you guys doing, and I got looked at like I had on the Klan's uniform. So you know it was it was. it's like I, I grew up in the hood. I like music, I, you know. But hey, but they, but we were people. Are, a lot of people don't understand the reality of Living Color's existence. Put the hit songs aside and Mick Jagger and all of that. How, where we come from and who we are and how people couldn't get comfortable around us because may, most of the time their own issues. So I love R and B. Everybody over there had a suit on. Everybody was kind of fronting on this kind of a you know church almost slick R and B black vibe, but they also listen to Slash Stone. They also listen to Jimi Hendrix. They also listen to. But how? What do they identify with? And in that office, they had to identify with this sheen, shine, Jerry Curl, almost s kind of R and B kind of a thing. Right. And then we came along, and we were on the other side of the label with all the big money making white artists. So when I went over to say hello, I almost felt like I was being. It was like, well, what are you doing mm-hmm. here? Well, it's, it's, it's all music, isn't it? So. It's a, interesting take on on the first comment Corey made about not being signed versus when I, I don't know about you guys, when I first walked into a record label, I didn't know it was segregated like that. Hmm. I wasn't hip to that. Maybe you guys went to, that was my first experience going into a label and realizing oh well, like it's, I, I figured it's Columbia. I'm a jazz fan. I'm like, man, I want to get some Miles Davis. Oh, you got to go upstairs to the 15th floor. And you go upstairs and you get out the elevator and they're like, this guy from Living Colors here, what the hell does he want? <laughs> I mean, it's that guy. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, and, and not, yeah. not even 30 years ago. It's such a short period the record labels, like they that. kept you on another side of the hallway hmm. on a different floor. So when we were when we were up at Sony, we were with rock artists. Mm-hmm. Whoever was on the rock sign and was in those offices, it's a great hang. If I wanted to go pick up the new Miles Davis release, I had to go to a different other floor. The they day. had to call and give me permission. When I went to the black music department, mm-hmm. I had to go over there and it was like I was entering a new country. We were an enigma anywhere we went. And like like Will was saying, b- despite the the hit record or or our association with Mick Jagger, people looked at us very strangely and they tried to figure out who and what we were. Mm-hmm. Like, I go to a hardcore show when people are like, why are you here? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I, I'd go, I, or, or I'd go to a hip hop show and they'd go, why are you here? 
Or you're too much of a rock guy. Yeah, it's like I was too much you of an. Couldn't in, fit I, in anything. I didn't fit. In, we didn't fit into, into any particular place. We got we had funny stories like people didn't want to approach us because they thought we were particular. We were a particular kind of people. Some people didn't want to didn't want to deal with us because they thought we were too militant. Some people didn't want to deal with us. They thought that we would all we were trying to do was be white. I had a friend that was of mine. A very painful thing. That happened on the Oprah Winfrey that show. Was, that was by very way. Painful. Yeah, it happened was, on the Oprah Winfrey. What, what show. happened on Oprah? On Oprah, they had a show about. Painful. I'm going to call it out. About blacks that want to be white. Now we had nothing to do with the show. They had they had very light skinned people who were saying, "My grandmother's this. I had blue eyes. I had green eyes. Why do you straighten your hair?" It was a horrifying show. But in the commercial break, you know how they fade, they'll say a topic, and now we're going to come back to, you know, blacks who who are really black and want to be that. They played the cold video. Wow. And, right. and somebody at Sony had to call their, that, uh, uh, Oprah's, whatever it's called, her production Harpo, producers, Harpo, Harpo yeah. to say, what the hell's going on? You owe us an apology because they didn't ask for that. So there it is, a show about blacks wanting to be white and in a commercial, to fade to commercial, Corey's in the mic shaking his hair around. Right, and suddenly we got nothing, saying, And we got nothing to do with that. How'd you feel topic. about that, Vernon? That was incredible. For me, that was incredibly painful. Because the thing about us is that we never accepted the idea that rock was not black music. Mm. Rock is everyone's music. One of the things for me is rock represented the rock artists I appreciated. They were doing their own thing. Jimi Hendrix's, the Sly Stones, the Led Zeppelins, the Police, U2, mm-hmm. Peter Gabriel. To me, rock represented being able to say what you want to say. So you could be whoever you want to be, and then you get in it, and then there's all these rules to follow. Mm-hmm. The problem with the, the, the problem, the thing I want to connect to what Vernon and Corey are saying is, living color in a lot of ways, and I don't mean to say this in a, any kind of academic way, wasn't supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. The problem with living color's success was it it became all of those things Vernon said were supposed to be. We were not. We weren't put into a, really a category. So you're right. You go into a label. You go somewhere. How are you gonna? If you're hip hop, how you know gold chains and mm-hmm. but what is living color to other people? We had no problem being living color, but when we showed up and it happened at Rock Awards, the Grammys, getting in the elevator with cats, they, we, we were like this. Oh shit! Now if I say this, I'm not sure about that. Or some people just vibe, just like Corey said. But that's their issues. Mm, they they have it with themselves. But, but let but, me tell you, but from 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 a rock kid point of view, being 16 or 17 and being a total metal guy, right. when living color came on the scene in Winnipeg once again right, right. there's no black or white there it's just people are people that's just the way it is when you grow up in that place and to see Living Color I think I heard the tune first Cult of Personality this is great yeah. Tara's great the vocals are great and then you see God and they're black <laughs> this is really cool because I've never <laughs> seen that blink. before and also what you guys did was start teaching metal kids about the funk and about the groove some bands had it but you guys really locked in on it especially like I, th- I remember on our radio station Open Letter was a big hit mm-hmm. and that is super Super funky and groovy. Yeah. So when you got guys who are obsessed with Metallica and Anthrax, who also had you know Public Enemy and I'm the Man, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But you're talking about Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and Ozzy, and then you guys come on. It still fits that genre, but it's completely different. But it's still heavy and it fits. It's like you know what we did bring the bring, bring the noise. Bring the noise. I mean that was such a fantastic moment. Or when Run DMC covered Walk This Way. Right. Right. That was Walk the yeah. Way. And we and we. Got a chance to play Walk This Way last summer when we toured with them. So you toured like, with Run DMC? No, with yeah. Anthrax. Oh, there was Aerosmith. So it's like a kind yeah. of closing of all kinds of circles. Sure. The DJs just want to hear the beat. Yeah. They're not concerned with who's on the record cover. 
I don't think I don't think the kids really did either. Maybe it was no. the, it was the suits. Maybe mm-hmm. the the, the man. Uh, the, but the, see, here's absolutely. the thing about culture that's deep. Growing up in the Bronx, especially in the whole hip hop vibe, about scratching, DJs wanted to find loops. So there were a lot of black kids that grew up not even knowing the history of Aerosmith or who Aerosmith maybe even sure. was that heard that groove or and it got did. locked. And you know, no, some did, but I'm just saying it. That's the thing interesting about culture. People attach themselves to something that they like without getting into white, black, north, south, east, west. Yeah. It's something that is a connection. I asked. <laughs> When, I, when we were on tour with them, you know, I asked the guys about the video. Aerosmith? Yeah, yeah. I spoke to directly about and and I was talking to Joe, and, and, and um, they said basically they were on a flight, and they got a phone call about doing the video. And the minute, Stephen told me, the minute he got off the plane, the, to, the bang up the plane, the guy who was going to direct the video wanted to meet them to run the concept down because nobody wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. At the label, they didn't want and, to. And he, Stephen said, when he told me, you're going to sing the line, they're going to scratch, and I get to knock the wall out. You know what I mean? And, <laughs> the and, and we're going to get together. He was like, let's do the video. And that was <laughs> and, a major and metaphor in that. Yeah, in that that's idea. the thing that that's he talked about. The metaphor the re- of, he said, oh, I get to smash, take the microphone. Breaking the wall down. Right? Breaking you know, the wall you, down. You know, the run DMC's on the other side. I want to do this video. You know, that's the connection. If you think about it, if you go back, you look at Living Color and its history, and you look at like a DJ like Grandmaster Flash or Cool Herc or some of those DJs that were bridging Sonics. They just knew that if it's grooving and you can get somebody on the dance floor and vibe it out, it's cool. So there's a, to me, there's a, there's a deep connection between a band like Living Color, who has, it's kind of like, we like all kinds of music, mm-hmm. and a hip hop DJ, who liked all kinds of music and was able to bridge that stuff together and start to introduce that to the block parties. Mm-hmm. I, I still think that at the end of the day, people dig what they dig, but if you can control the environment, it does make a difference. And that controlled environment had an effect on us. Mm-hmm. It had an effect on our success and our outcome, I think, and how people viewed it. I think Living Color is responsible for, you know, smashing a hole in that wall as I agree. well, too. You know, yeah. absolutely. All right, there are some seriously talented luchadors in AEW, and not all of them speak English, which can make putting together matches a little challenging sometimes. That's why I signed up for Rosetta Stone. I'm learning Spanish, amigos. Hey, amigas, see? Already learning. Haha, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program You don't even have to learn Spanish, though, because Rosetta Stone has 25 languages, including French, German, Korean, Arabic, and Polish, and Japanese. That's what I'm going to do next. I spent a lot of time in Japan, and I still work with a lot of Japanese wrestlers at AEW, like Takeshita. So having a better handle on the language will definitely show in the ring. Communication is key. And learning Spanish on Rosetta Stone has been so fun and easy. They've got this true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. Sort of like having a personal trainer for your accent. I'm using the app, but you can also do the lessons on desktop or laptop. I also like that I can download the lessons and do them offline, which is perfect for a plane. I can sit there on a flight and work on my Espanol. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Talk is Jericho listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash Jericho. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash Jericho today. That's rosettastone.com slash Jericho. Do it today. Talk is talk is talk is Jericho. 
How were you guys accepted when you first uh, came on the scene uh, with Vivid by the rock community? Uh, the, I, didn't, Other I, didn't feel, I didn't feel anything about rock communities on bands that were, we were already out there because we kind of already had relationships with some of the bands by going out and playing on them. There were some vibes, I'm not afraid to say, from some more known musicians. Mm. I felt uh, visually uh, there was, a, you know, running a little bit with one or two of the Led Zeppelin dudes. I'm just going to speak freely about it. I don't give a shit about that. <laughs> um, um, Sting. Sting uh, in yeah, a bad way. Yeah, well, but he was. Most it was, of his stick is reggae it was, based. It, it was a little. Un, it was a little uncomfortable. You can feel some vibes. It wasn't like a you know like yeah. there were some people. Yeah. Eric Clapton was the darkest, but I mean there, there, <laughs> there were there were other musicians that came out and were like, hey, like, what's going like on? Jack Bruce was in the you know, same Jack, band. You know, right. you know, you know, other other people came out and were like, it was really openly greeting. You know, Little Richard and other people that were just really like, hey, mm-hmm. white, black, whatever. But there were some people who gave you I think funny did it. Well, they didn't know. They did. They did. They weren't really sure. So it was like a little bit. You know, it was like, well, these guys are kind of clever. And also, honestly, Mike, when you go to an to an event, it's almost like the music pigeonholing gets carried over into the visual artistic introduction visual. Uh, pigeonholing so we don't look like other black people that are at those events I have to say honestly or they expect you to be a certain kind of a way and our music threw people off and then the, the vibe well yeah. we just showed up you know you articulate the chorus got long saying, green and well, blue it, and red hair forget and about, forget body, about the, body glove yeah yeah forget <laughs> about the hair and the body glove for a minute right. I'm talking about going to an event and saying hello to somebody and saying what's up there is that underground racism of you maybe having to be a clown or maybe having to have on 80s Going to the early nineties, right, right. Certain kind of a jewelry, untied sneakers, big that, hair, and big right, hair. Right, you know, right, right. Oh, yo, 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 yo. And you're going like, hey, how's it doing? And you're talking about intelligent things. People who have their own issues have a hard time pigeonholing you into. You can't get pigeonholed now. So, well, I thought they were like this, but hang on a minute. But right. and a lot of those times, they came out with very positive relationships mm-hmm. afterwards, right? You know, gotcha. but and then something, but but yes, we walked into those with people wanting us to be, you know, this cup. And if you're not that yeah. cup, I don't know really how to talk to you because all the black people I know are like that cup. Right. And now that you're not like that, they they. But I have to say, like I, I would say, seventy percent of the time it flipped, and people were like, Once "Oh, okay." And it was positive. Kinship. We had like kinship with a lot of bands, bands like Soul Asylum. We kind of came up mm, together. Same vibe. Yeah. You right. know what I mean? Of course, the bands we looked up to like Bad Brains. I've Fish already bone. mentioned Anthrax, you know, a, a Fishbone, Soundgarden. You know, they were they were R.E.M. Uh, right. There were other 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 artists that were really kind of like, yo, we in the we're in this we're in this thing. Mm-hmm. And, and it was together. and it was very it was very cool. You know? <laughs> one, one of the things that I really wanted I want I want to mention is the support we got from. One particular club owner, but really a whole scene. It was Hilly Crystal and CBGBs. Mm-hmm. We would have never happened. Which is a famous one, was the punk rock club in New yeah, York City. Yeah, well, the thing is, we're also talking about an era that's really passed. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, I came, we came up in an era where there were a lot of places to play. And whatever kind of scene you want to be into. And Hilly Crystal, the owner of CBGBs, he took a liking to the band. And part of the thing about Hilly's history is that Hilly was the manager of the Vanguard, the jazz club on the West Village. Yeah, famous place, right? So when he heard us doing, because I came out of a kind of crazy free jazz almost background mixed with rock music. So we would do these things, he would hear it. He didn't hear it like, I don't know what you boys are trying to do. He understood exactly what it was. So he, so Hilly really already had insight. And then there were people uh, like Steve Gallagher who booked this. You know what I mean? Like, oh, there, there were folks. Steve Martin. 
you know, see, you know, there were folks, and there were all these places to play. There was the Lone Star Cafe when it had iguana mm -hmm. on the roof on third on Thirteenth Street. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, these are the these are the things. Tramps, the Cat Club, Dance Interior. Um, the Ritz, the, you know the Ritz for the metal guys, Lamore Academy, Lamore, yeah. yeah. You know all of these, all of these spots, and once we started to develop, it took a, a lot of changes. But once we started to develop a local following, that's really when it when it changed changed for us. It went from being like this weird, I don't know what that guy's trying to do, and then suddenly it became a thing. But all along the way, there have been people that just said stuff. You know, knowing Doug back in the days, there was a, a photographer named Steve Critchlow. You know, he he was young and he passed away back then. And I remember when I would do these uh, shows with the with then a trio. These were mainly instrumentals. I came from an instrumental thing, and I wrote this song, "Funny Vibe," because this lady had clutched a handbag when I got in an elevator, and it pissed me off, and it made me. You know. Wow! Yeah. So I started playing the song. And, and Steve said to me, he ran into me on the street, he said, Vernon, you have to decide what you want to do. Like, you're doing these instrumentals, you're doing this other thing, you can't do both. And so one day I decided I'm gonna leave the vocal, because I wrote, I wrote a couple other songs, I was messing with it, and I did a show and I was like, I'm just gonna do the instrumental thing. So I decided the other thing, and this poet friend of mine, Jessica Hagedorn, a great novelist and writer, she came up to me after this and said, why'd you take out the songs with the words? So I was waiting to hear these tunes. And that's when it flipped. Hmm. And then got a call to open for Fishbone's first show. I had already opened for the Art Ensemble of Chicago in the same room. So then I realized I can't be the singer. I'm too nervous. I'm like too, I'm too shaky. Mm -hmm. And I met this guy at a birthday party that my sister dragged me to. And I gave him a call. And and all of these things, like one thing led to another thing. We were left in a lurch. This was Corey, the guy at the Corey, birthday party? Corey, and you know, we, we did it. You gig. regretting it ever since? Yes. Um, <laughs> and so, so there's like a whole history. And we had, we, we had a different band. And uh, um, they were snapped up by an English rock star who shall remain nameless. Oh, well, the whole band? There's not, no, we, oh. we were, our, 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 our bass player and drummer at the time, snatched up and we had a gig to do we had like a few days and I, rem I remember I was introduced to a drummer I met a drummer Jaco Pistorius introduced me to a drummer wow. at a gig where I used to play 55 grand I called him up and it was an, it was nutty I'm canceling the gig no, you don't understand. I was getting calls every 15 minutes <laughs> vacillating between the two extremes we're not doing a gig. I got somebody. <laughs> and he can't do it. I got somebody else. <laughs> it's like for third, for an hour and a half, I get getting calls from Vernon saying we're doing a gig. We're not doing a gig. We're doing a gig. We're not doing a gig. We're doing a gig. We're not doing a gig. Stop calling me. What happened was this. It came to my mind that if we don't do this gig, the band is over. But if we do do the gig and it sucks. Pan is over. Still over. <laughs> you know, and, and and it was it was it was not the most pristine <laughs> and exact. Yeah. But you know, we survived. Yeah. 
And we got, and it's the thing is, and it's really about a lot of it. Is, you know how it is, man. You get knocked down, it's what you do next. Mm -hmm. Sure. Like, how do you respond? You know, it's like if you if if you're down on the mat, what happens next determines the whole mm -hmm. thing. You you can stay down. You can listen to what those people tell you, because all of us that became musicians, unless you came from a musical family where that's the family business, right? Unless it's the family business, mm. your parents are very concerned about your future. They're yeah. not happy. Yeah, they're not happy, and they and they want to dissuade you from this foolishness. My father was very Absolutely. concerned whenever Vernon came to my door. <laughs> that guy is back. Well, Vernon, you know the thing about when Vernon was calling me was. The, it wasn't. I wasn't confused by what he was saying. He was just calm, and I didn't feel like he was interested in doing it because he was like, "Man, I don't know if I'm gonna do this gig. Probably gonna suck anyway." All right, cool, man. I'll talk to you later. And he called me back. I think we should do the gig. <laughs> I'm not really sure. And I'm saying to myself, man, for a guy who sounds, it's a subject matter right. sounds crucial. He sounds like he doesn't give a damn about right, the gig. So, so yeah. I just kept saying, "All right, man, whatever you want to do." Then he was like. You'd have to learn all the songs today. There's <laughs> 10 songs, and then I think you could learn the songs today. Yeah, man, I'll learn the songs. That's a lot of songs. <laughs> you know, it was you like might, kind of back and forth. But it was but, Maxwell's, and it was, I was happy to do it. And um, uh, um, I, during one or two of my college drives down in New York, and I met Vernon and then the BRC, and then he played my my college band on his radio he had a radio show mm. with greg tate and they and he played my um <laughs> music on his radio show and we just were kind of talking along that line but when you, i, I want to bring something up when you talk about doug talked about the whole thing in history and jagger and the black man's and everything it was really interesting because if you look at jagger and bowie and maybe some of the artists uh uh, uh may not want to mention <laughs> um, Can I? Well, well, you know, you, you know. What does it, it rhyme it, with? It's, it's no, 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 no. It's Beef Bitwood. <laughs> no. when, when you look at when you look at these kind of bands, a lot of I'm just gonna say this because of my generation. Right. Um, I grew up admiring, you know, a lot of the, you know, the Carlos Alomars and the Ronnie Draytons, and the, because you know, the Steve Jordan lived around the corner for me. These are guys that I saw as a as a you know 13, 14 year old that were doing the thing I wanted. They were there. They were neighborhood guys that were you know Eddie Martinez. They were guys yeah. that were there. Mm -hmm. So that, it, it just immediately gave me the the, the gumption that it's possible and I can do it, it's not a problem. But it's very interesting how um, growing up, I have an older brother who's, who's six years older than me. So that generation is that band, the real band generation. Two, two four horns, two keyboard players, two yeah. guitar, you know. That was Everyone sings. Everybody sings, yeah. you know, 13 cats on stage. Mm -hmm. So I, I got to watch that. The interesting thing that happened though was, which, which makes Vernon's story about starting Living Color interesting is, most of the our communities got cleaned out by these English rock stars. They come pick up all the best players. Yes, yes, right. the, the, the and some American ones, mm -hmm. but, like Beef. But 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 they they came through. <laughs> like Beef is from England, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, they Beef came through. So so a lot of the bands that I saw when I was thirteen that were killer never happened because those guys went off the cherry guys So when he did Doug, Doug was a master of that. But when he did, he decided to do. I'm sure he's working the same. I'm sure Vernon got the same cause. Oh, did you? Yes, buyer buff. Buyer buff. Yeah. So you know, it's so fascinating to bring that up because it brings to mind some things that I remember happening, like like the bands. I was in a band. I was in a band briefly with Omar King. 
Mm. And who went to Sting's Sting's band? Right, but there was like he just played like, Journey last year. There, and and yeah. there were a bunch of artists, musicians like Busta Jones, R.I.P. You know what I mean? They were in the mix big time, but they were kind of like hired hands. Mm. We were we were influenced by uh, just a lot of tremendous people. And when somebody says, you know, I started playing the bass, or I started playing the drums, or I started playing guitar, I'm not talking about grown ass people, <laughs> and which is kind of disturbing. I was four <laughs> years old. What? You know, this, I'm on my second marriage. Oh my God. You know? and, and they say, we influence, we're, it's just like meeting the artists. Right. Sure. That, for us, yeah. right. We're part of you know. You become now the longevity you have has now made you guys influences, you know, for all the different musicians and different bands what, and stuff. Like it's, but, it's like to be with to to be here, you know, with Jane's Addiction. With Jane's yeah. Addiction is so awesome because, you know, we we played the first Lollapalooza and it's just, it's we hadn't seen him for a long time, but it's great to to be in because this is kind of where we we have a simpatico. Because I mean? Jane's also another band that broke down a lot of walls with their style of music, mm-hmm. completely original and strange at the time, mm-hmm. you know. But another thing I want to get to, I want to talk about your new single, "Who Shot Ya." Uh, is is Living Colors always had a, a, an interesting message in the songs, even going back to I had no idea what a cult of personality was when I first heard it. Open letter, desperate people, Elvis is dead, type, all these different amazing stories. Um, and now with this single, in the world that we live in today, why did you pick that song? And it's the perfect song to describe some of the the relations going on, race relations with the cops and kind of the society that we live in now. Well, the thing about it, it wasn't meant to be, and I'm gonna let Corey fill it out, but it really happened organically because we would do sound checks and Corey would do the verse from Who Shot You. Mm-hmm. And, and when we were getting ready to do this record, we had uh, already recorded a song by, by Robert Johnson, The Preaching Blues. And I was like, you know what? We should record Who Shot You because you're, every time we do a sound check. So it wasn't picked. Because of. Because yeah. of, it wasn't picked to be, to comment on. It's terribly, I'm not ironic, it's ter- terribly coincidental. Sure. But, you know, it really came out of this organic thing of, oh, this is something that he loves. You can't lose with something you love. Yeah, the song in and of itself was always, it's like, I always thought that we should do something with this song. Like, I always thought, thought I had a tongue-in-cheek sort of idea about this song where it's sort of like spoke, it's like spoken word and, and you know, and you're snapping your fingers. But it what really became profound about this about doing this song I'm going to shoot you myself (laughs) (laughs) me (laughs) I did it (laughs) no but I thought I thought that the song needed the song was very prescient in what was going on was which was a continuum of what's going on in terms of the culture the gun of gun culture Mm -hmm. that not just you know, in 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 African American communities or in people, uh, communities of color, but around North America, everywhere really, in North sure. America, the idea of guns. It's funny. We there was a discussion on the bus last night. A couple people in in, in our crew are dyed in the wool liberals, just just the fuzziest liberals you ever want to meet in your life. And some other guys kind of lean to a more conservative kind of thing. And the, the subject of guns came up. 
And there was on one side, it was like, it was, it's about this particular weapon. It's about this, that, the other. And the other guy was like, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't know what guns are. You have no idea what guns are. It's a, such a convoluted, huge mm-hmm. mess of a thing to understand. But that the bottom line is that it destroys people. And there was just, somebody was saying something like, the only people who have, have problems with guns are people without guns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but that's the thing. It's such a hot button topic. It is, it's, it's almost like religion, politics, and gun control. Exactly. So you don't throw those. In the you don't. You don't. You don't talk about that in polite society. So, but we do. Um, <laughs> and we broached a lot of subjects on on several different occasions. But the idea of guns and how they've proliferated our ideas of how the world works, like to, from the from the tiniest thing, like if you are in. A fight, it ends when the guns come out. To, you know, is a global sort of problem. We must bring out the bigger guns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, these are it, it, it's 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 a part of all that we do. And why not talk about it? And why not? I don't have a I don't have a solution for it. I don't think I don't, I don't know what whether banning guns or or giving everybody a gun or taking away everybody's guns. Any of that's going to make any difference. They're just going to invent a different gun. So you know, take away all the guns. Okay, so we can make a gun out of a light bulb. Right. You know. Right. Um, it give everybody a gun. Everybody's dead. So. There's no real solution to it, but to shine a spotlight on the situation is something that is necessary. Well, the problem is also the pace of change because, you know, like uh, Jackie Robinson had to bite the bullet. He had to go through all of that, you know, because we had to force, the change had to be forced. The Edmund Pettus Bridge had to happen. Mm -hmm. John Lewis had to do that. Like, there's a whole thing of, we're gonna change, Don't, don't, don't make it happen too soon. And it got to the point where the situation is intolerable. The situation is intolerable. And the thing that's so interesting is like people are complaining, are comparing uh, unjustified, unwarranted police shootings to lynchings. But what people misunderstand, because I misunderstood it. See, I thought lynchings were some kind of spontaneous explosion of rage. Lynchings were social events. Lynchings, lynchings, lynchings were social events. Tickets were sold. You're kidding me. I wow. wouldn't. Yeah. I learned this. I learned this. No shit. I learned. I learned they this. They sold parts of bodies. No, no. They, they sold pieces of people's liver, souvenirs. fingers. No, no. That, see, that's the part see, that they don't talk about. See, wow. the thing is, I learned this working on a film called Through a Lens Darkly. And it was about black people as subject of photography and as photographers. And one of the things that they had in the movie was a ticket, was postcards. Postcards were made and sold of lynchings and tickets to lynchings. Wow. Like the idea of we're going to take an extra legal step, and not only that, we're going to sell concessions to it. So the absolute depravity and horror of it is, is kind of minimized. I mean, the image of the person hanging or being burnt is, is horrific enough. But when you think about it, it was a business. To consider that, that meant that this had to, this could not, because where would, if you didn't attack it, where was it going to go next? Sure, right. And this is part of the issue and the problem, because justice was never dealt with. At the time, people were above the law, 
and to turn around and say, okay, what about black on black crime and this, that, and this, that, and the third? Well, there's a, issues of, there are all kinds of issues involved with it, but because we don't, we're not able to form a language of just like, you know what, I'm not gonna throw your feet in the fire. You weren't there, I get it, mm-hmm. right? I'm not blaming you, but can we talk about the fact that this actually happened in our country and move on from that? It's right. education in a sense, you know what I mean? It's like anything else, like you have, you have a lot of situations where things just happen and doesn't get discussed. You know, and it's how you're raised. Look, when you're a kid, you're two, three years old, you don't see black or white. You see a kid, you see a kid. Right. Right. You're taught by when you're watching the, your elders and you see how they respond around stuff and then you pick that up. Mm-hmm. You get into, it's, educa- it's how you're educated. If you're educated, if you're, if you, if you raise a dog, right, and you're trying to get the dog goes in the garbage can and you want to train this dog not going to garbage can, you know what I mean? Then you know, one way to do it is put some put some scotch bonnet in the car, garbage can, <laughs> and he let him taste that. He ain't gonna he ain't gonna go in there again. Yeah, right, right, right. You know what I mean? It's like certain things you can do to kind of like spark a reality of like that's not right for me to do. Mm-hmm. Dog pisses on the floor, you can't just take his nose and rub it into it. He don't know any difference. You gotta take him outside and let him know right. that that's what's going on. So it's like, in a sense, it's like education. You have to teach people at an early age this is wrong. Right. Sure. Chris. Right. That's, so it's, that's part of the cult's personality. That's part of that idea that I can show you a better way. That this is the this is the way. I know the way. There's the people who are doing that right the, as we speak. That's the that's the that's the history of politics. Is that I know a better way. Follow me. Mm-hmm. I see the world as it is. Come this way, and and you, and your friend over there feels the same way, and so does his friend and everybody else. So let's do let's let's do this. Make me president. Make me. That's the cult of personality. <laughs> That's the cult of personality. We all know that those people do those things, and they do those things for those reasons. Come on. Well, that's what happens when we're kids. This is say, let's get, let's shift the music, for example. Like for when you're that, when you get to a certain point, you start digging certain music, right? Then you got some folks that are like, you know, there's a lot of musical police officers out here that will arrest your ass. Now I'm playing rock and roll, but you're not supposed to listen to jazz. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's Especially when you're a kid. Yeah. When you're a kid, you're a teenager. you play metal. Yeah. Why are you playing funk? Yeah, you can't That's like not both. Cool. You playing, you playing jazz, and some cats are like, "That ain't the shit." And other cats, jazz cats, are like, "Well, you couldn't swing if you were hanging from a float." <laughs> so it's kind of like you know, it's all in the mentality right. of what goes on up here. Yeah, it all, it's all what lies between your two ears in this cranium right here, and you get programmed over time by the people that influence you, starting with your family. If you got a racist ass mother and father, there's a good chance your ass is gonna be racist too. Mm-hmm. And all the, and all depends, and all depends, or it could flip, but it all depends on how you are processing that information. And if you stay in one sector of, of a certain thing, now how are you possibly gonna get out of it? So it's like this, you people, I come from the city of Hartford, Connecticut. Hartford is a nice, you think it's a nice clean cut. A city, right? You know, insurance cap. It's got one of the highest murder rates in America for the side. And people are so ingrained in the ghetto there, you know what I mean? They, they, they It's almost like hopeless for you to get out. You, there's many blocks you can go, but because of the environment that you were taught and you were trained, you, can, you only stay within those certain blocks. That's what you know. That's kind of what you became familiar with. And anything else is like watching a movie. You, can, you don't want to go there because you're trained to stay within it's these real particular talk. vibes. Think about how things are designed. Um, <laughs> like 
housing projects. <laughs> um, one of the things that always struck me is that you have to pay for things to be pretty. Mm. Like, so why do people who are poor have to live in ugly circumstances? That's because that's the municipal will. That's the that's kind of like. But doesn't it cost money to have those things? Actually, I want something to look good. Actually, no, it doesn't. It doesn't, and it's all about the character of it. I, I'm on the Bronx Council of the Arts, and there's a very wealthy woman who took her money to start this council to go into Freeman Street and Simpson Street. You guys know that neighborhood at that time it was some of the worst neighborhoods in the Bronx, and put up buildings where. They're regular, nice-looking buildings. The apartments are different. They look like Manhattan Plaza inside. They're gorgeous. If you want to, she has a woman on the top floor. Everybody gets a cutout about twice the size of the square. If you want to learn how to grow corn and beans and peas, there's a lady who works with her, top floor. Everyone in the building gets to have their own little section to grow their own food. Right. So you don't got to go to the grocery store if they're selling crap food. She just went to this concept of it. She has another building of... Single and pa- single and married couples who have cha- children with challenges, whether they're mentally, you know, they're banging on the walls or they're loud or they, you know, they have t- padded rooms like recording studio apartments. She has another building of people who get out of prison and they can't get jobs and can't get apartments because of their record. So this is just a little small area with these three different style buildings where it looks nice. It's not so fly like it is on Fifth Avenue, but people. It does, she, told, she told us it didn't cost a lot of money to do it. It took a few people who wanted to see it happen. Right. One of the things that have been fortunately being in this band, some of the accoutrements of being in this band, is I've been, able to, to been able to travel. And, and um, the, I will say more recently, my, my favorite spot has been Mali. It's been West Africa. And I've been researching music and studying and driving around to the northern part of the country. And one of the things that, I, I mean, I got lost a million times. I had... You know, it was so hot. Sometimes we had exploding tires, all kinds of madness, but it was great. I met great people, great musicians. One of the things that was the most profound for me, like starting to do that like the first time was all of the massive musicians that I wanted to meet. I was trying to study this music and learn about. They were all these tucked away families. They were tucked away. They were out in it. And I went to see these people they had dirt floors, spotless, clean homes. I never heard any parent or any elder yell at anyone younger than them. There was never a chastising thing. There was never a get over here. The, the 13-year-olds look after the 10-year-olds, look after the 5-year-olds, look after the infants. There was order in these villages where there's no police, there's no jails, there's nobody, there's nobody walking around with any weapons being exposed, no violent language, no even loud speaking. And I, when I first started going into these places, I was like, wow, you know, they're controlling their environment on wealth and value. Not, you know, the value, the most valuable thing in those communities are the elders. The oldest people are the gods. That's what you want to be like. That's who you go to talk to. One part of Mali, I got to tell you, that was deep. I have a photograph of it. They have this stone circle and you have to crawl into it and you can't stand up in it. You have to sit in it. And it's stone. It's just cracks from the, the rocks. It's, just, it's made totally with stones. No cement. And it's cool in there because it's hot as hell outside and the air blows in there. And I was like, man, what is, what is this thing for? Oh, this is where we meet historically, thousands of years ago, still there, to, to when there's a problem in the village. Mm-hmm. And you know why we all come in here? You can't stand up. You can't jump up and go, hey, man, it. you'll hit your head. The environment is set for you to calm down. 
chill. Interesting. We're going to talk about this. No one's going to yell. No one's going to cut anyone off. No one's going to stand up. No one's going to point. So there's stones, and you sit down. It's, there's, the ceiling's about right here, and there's stones, like the smallest ones inside. You stand up, you're going to get knocked out. Right. And I went in there, and the elders wanted to show me because I was I was fascinated by wow this is I said well let me let me show you what my grandfather showed me and his grand and this is a place where you go and you sit down and is this a problem Corey's spot village is vibing with Doug's vibing with mine Vernon doesn't have a vibe so we're gonna go to Vernon's village where there's no vibe because everybody's village has really? the stone thing and we're gonna really? all sit down in there and we're gonna have this conversation so we leave there clear. No one's gonna be like that. Doesn't exist. He wanted me to see what the importance of how. Because I was blown away. I was like, man, cats are. You gotta walk five miles for water. And that, that, that would piss sense, me. Right? That would piss me off just to go on to get the water. You know what I'm saying? But um, it, it was amazing. interesting because when you talk about value, like I really gotta know another whole look. But it's it's just that. like going to Japan where they treat the elders as elders yeah. they're not senior citizens they're people that you go to for advice mm-hmm. uh, a lot of Japanese kids are more closer to their grandparents their parents because their grandparents will give them here it's not like that as much uh, I find that, that that senior citizens kind of get kind of uh, swept away a little bit more wow. when you go to that 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 culture the seniors are still at the top of the food chain mm-hmm. as they are I think the in, information is there and the experience right, is there to help and they even it doesn't matter if someone's going senile or not the baddest drummer in the village if he's 100 years old and he can't play anymore and can't talk you don't say you're better than him that's right. a curse to say that yeah. he's still around he's still there you go still pay your respects to him every Saturday whatever mm-hmm. and you go back you could be the baby you don't even say when right. he guys so and so is going to be there or I'm next in line you don't yeah. even utter those words he's alive he's there yeah. he created a certain scene for us to learn this music he's still a master and we have to respect yeah. that there's nothing to really even sure. talk about there so it was interesting that you that you talk about like the whole thing with the the order the order of it and and it it, it makes those societies and those little villages that I went to so much it made so much sense it was simple things that I was like wow you mentioned talking about your elders and it's funny we could be talking all day but you guys got a gig and I know just a couple last questions I want to talk about how you played with the Stones on this tour you mentioned it earlier how was it playing with the Rolling Stones on one of your first tours one of the most you know revered bands of all time it was crazy it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun they uh, one of the things that was funny man is that they, they really opened the door for us to be with them because it was kind of, it's intimidating. You know what I mean? They're just freaking stones. And we were kind of like in our dressing room, just kind of go do the gig. And it was like, hey man, how come guys are not hanging out? They were like thinking that we were kind of like sort of being, I don't know what, but mm-hmm. it was just because they've been the stones for so long that it's just the way they live. And then we, you know, we was like, come on, hang out. So we were in their dressing room more than we were in our own dressing room. Which is pretty rare, because you know, being a headlining band, how often do you hang out with the opening band, right? Well, well, the Stones is, the thing about that is the Stone, the door swings open. If the door swings open to you, you really are in. Oh, gotcha. But if the door swings closed, (laughs) you are, the phrase persona non grata is (laughs) You're out. There was a crew, there was a person who had been selling he uh, had been selling passes, and he was found out, and, and he had been with the organization for quite a long time, and he was out. He was 
he was literally done. He vanished. His name never came up. It done. Was, it was mm -hmm. over. And that's kind of the way they handled things. You know, if you if you were in, and it wasn't like oh, there are rules. You got you got you didn't have to be careful. You could talk. You know, to to you could talk to hey man. You know, play ping pong with Bill Wyman, whatever. Mm -hmm. But there were certain things. You didn't trade on the fact that you, you didn't use the fact that you were in the Rolling Stone circle as trade. Mm. If you did that, you were out. Mm. We, didn't, we didn't think of it, but we saw what happened. You mean someone trying to hustle them or something from the inside or? Well, Doug knows about being with the camp. I mean, the camp is really, like for us, you know, Doug knows the camp, he was in it, but for us, it was a new experience and we, everyone was gracious. Jagger had us come, Keith was always cool. We, you know, he's worked with them individually on their records as, as well. But I mean, for us as a band coming on, being allowed to sound check, wow. having Mick ask you questions on the sound check, come into our dressing room and say, this is too small. I'm gonna give you guys a bigger room. Make sure every day somebody comes over to our dressing room and hang, it's not, you know, it's not our tour. I invited you guys on this tour. You know, it's a little. I had a little. I had a little beef with a guy I used to call Scarface. We had a play beef, but you know, it was it was edgy play beef, and it was Keith's security guard. He had this knife um, wound <laughs> on his face. And I used to call him Scarface. Yeah. Big and, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a, and and um, you know, he always messed with me. He always say, "Yo, man, you know, the wind would blow in my past." Would turn around, and he would always go, "Hey." You're not allowed. To, you're not in the band. And I was like, "Come on, man!" And he was a big dude who felt like the side of a building. You know, you shook this guy's hand; it was like brick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and 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 he would say, "No, mate, you're not allowed." And he he would say, "Turn your pass around." So we had this kind of joke. And I used to always say, "When you get to New York, when we play Shea Stadium." I got a couple of homies. You're gonna disappear. You don't have no idea. You know, I was, you know, we had this little thing going on, but Mick didn't know that. So one day I was walking on stage on the thing, and my pass was turned around, and he stopped me. And he was doing this thing sometimes where he would block me, like, no, man, you can't get up here. You can't get up here. So you know, I turned the pass around. He's like, yeah, you better, you better keep that pass. And Mick was far away, and he walked up to me. We were sound checking, and he was like, "Is there a problem on the tour?" I'm like, "No, nah, man, everything is cool." He's like, "No, I need to know if there's a problem." I'm like, "No, nah, everything's cool." And he thought I was afraid to not say anything, so he called them over, and he said, "I invited this band on this tour. If there's anything that needs to go down on this tour, that you know, you just let me know." To... And he was cool, and I was cool because we both knew we were joking. But yeah, but Mick's did. vibe was like, even if you're joking, we're yeah, gonna put it. This not, is not cool. Right. right. Don't play those kind of games you know, you know on, on a tour the, the, the stones i mean again you know it's like you get these organizations and they survive over many many years you know through death through you know producers and this and this and that and that but it's the rolling stones now if you look at how they run their organization for example ronnie wood as long as he was in the rolling stones up until he just got he just got cut an equal partner yeah just recently ago. yeah like, you know what I mean? So they run, I mean, you know, you might think in your brain that you're <laughs> entitled to have certain things, but that's not the case. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's Mick, Keith, now Ronnie, and, and Charlie. And Charlie. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, this, and one thing that the English are geniuses at is controlling their shit. One thing the English, English are great at is giving you advice. Yeah, that comes free, but and one, one, but one, but what they do is they know how to control the environment. And I got a lot of resp I learned a lot, lot work with Mick. You know how to deal with people. You know how to be social in certain environments. How not to brown nose. How to be around. You know, be be your own person. It's like I got the gig with Mick Jagger because 
I was just, I was, I come from a hip hop vibe, you know what I mean? And when, when I was, you know, I went through the auditions and stuff and everything, but I noticed how when a lot of people were there in the auditions and stuff, they were just brown nose and they were all getting all excited and shit. I, I didn't give a shit. Mm-hmm. I was just like, you know, I was, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, the way I got tight with Mick was one day his, his brother Chris came in with a bag of weed and I said, it was an <laughs> ounce of fucking cess and he walked right by me and I was like, I can smell the shit. You know what I mean? End of <laughs> rehearsal. So everybody's over there. Mick is talking to everybody. A lot of folks are chatting to him. He gravitates towards me. He's like, how you doing, Doug? Is everything all right? I say, yeah, well, shit will be nice and fine if you roll one of those joints you got in that pocket. You know? <laughs> so I just kind of kept it real with him, you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't want to blow Mick yeah. up and you everything You get a remember the Rolling Stones. They've done everything. But, yeah. I mean, that's a mere flex. But, yeah. but the point is, a person will respect sure. you more. For your honesty like, yeah. and not, and also the, and also knowing that they can put you in the environment and you're not going to embarrass them or you're not going to take it upon yourself to yeah. think that you're writing the check because mm-hmm. that's not the case. But so there's a lot there's a lot there's a lot to <laughs> to learn and there's a and I I know Mick well Mick really took a lot of pride to look after living color. Mm-hmm. It meant a lot to him. Sure, sure, sure. You know what I mean? Because a, a lot of it, could, it was personal. A lot of it could be, you know, hey, again, we can go back to, th- there's a guilt factor as well. You right, know, the guilt, A lot yeah. of money, you know what I mean? But they saw a lot in Vernon, you know, Vernon, and they, it, it, it used to be a trip because every time when Living Color would come, and he could never remember anybody else's name. Dougie, what's, what's the drummer's name? It's Will, okay? You know, whatever. So there was things that took place, but that, but that, that they would, that they went above and beyond while Mick and Keith are arguing, while they got yeah. their own tip yeah, going yeah, yeah, yeah. on, while all that's, they had enough common sense to conduct business the brand was bigger than the riff right so when you're in that environment listen if you're the kind of person if you're not that educated but you're around very educated people for a certain period of time it's going to rub off on you mm-hmm. if you're around idiots for a period of time it's going to rub it's off going to rub off on you so we talked about so earlier, the one yeah. thing about the english the english are really really good at first of all there's the english it's it's, it's an island mm-hmm. so there's island mentality that goes right. with this things that excite them that don't necessarily excite us in a sense like that like they like certain things i thought it was quite corny you know what i mean certain things or like a band like a cop a liverpool football team could have a number one record in England. <laughs> sure. And you, I'm sitting there scratching my head. But the English have a way of like being, there's a social environment that takes place in England that just doesn't take place a lot of other places. Why? Uh, for us here, we have a lot of things to distract us. We have a lot of TV and, ch- and stuff like that. When I went to England, there was three TV channels. Mm-hmm. The TV went off at, at midnight. Three, at midnight. So what did everybody do? What was the central, where was the most central point of activity? The pub. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where are you going to find a police officer in a little village? The pub. But what it did, pub mentality gave you a way of bringing everybody together. It's like what Will was saying. You know, you get these, you get an environment where people can come together Mm -hmm. and chat. Nobody can chat more than the English. You can meet an English person within five minutes. It's like, do I owe you money? So they just take over. They have a gift of gab. You know what I mean? They were able to rule the world by the gift of Mm -hmm. gab. You know what I mean? But when you're there after a while, you can recognize the tones. I'm like, I ain't going for that. I heard, uh uh-huh. Not me. Were you ever up for that gig when when Wyman left the band? Yes. Wow. Down to the final wire, or no, no, it was very simple. You know, I when I when I auditioned for, I, I did. Um, Jeff Beck recommended me for the first Living Color audition. I got the audition. I, I got it from no, no, Mick, no, um, uh, Jeff Beck for, the start, for, for Mick Jagger's solo first solo right. record. 
I got recommended by a person named Keith Diamond. And he got, and that's how I, and, and, and also Jeff Beck, because I was coming off of working with Jeff Beck. Really, the idea was to have Jeff Beck's band to be oh, okay. mixed band. Mixed band. Right. That's how you know. So that's kind of, but it, but it started with a whole other like other different guitar players and drummers and so. But that was really kind of like what was really going on. I got I had to audition forty different bass players between New York, L.A., and London. I got the gig. You know what I mean? <coughs> Fast forward that that got me into the camp. Then next thing you know, I meet Ronnie Wood. I end up doing Ronnie Wood solo record. I I work with I was at Mix Chateau in France and Amboise. I'm in tours France and Charlie Watts hadn't been playing drums for a few years. He's in the Arabian horses and shit. He comes over to, to Mick's house and he's like, um, Mick comes to me. It's like, Dougie, I need you to do me a favor. What? Can you work out with Charlie? Because he hasn't been playing in a while. Can you just, you know, work, work out with him? By the way, out of all the people that Mick chose out of the first cut of the musicians, I'm the only one that everybody else got replaced. I'm the only one that, mm -hmm. that managed to sustain, to keep the gig. So I, I lived in England. I knew the English vibe. I knew the mannerisms. I knew how to be chill. I knew how to listen. And, you know, and I had a little bit of an edge just from that. But one thing led to another thing, led to another thing, led to another thing. I'm in the room with, in, at Olympic Studios when Will Calhoun called me. I'm actually watching 25 times five, which was a documentary that, the B, that came out on, on the BBC about 25 years of the Rolling Stone. I got Keith Richards next to me right there, and I got Mick Jagger right there. We're in the studio, we've been cutting some tracks, and they're watching themselves on the BBC going back to when they were young, when, uh, when they were first starting, and Mick is, and there's scenes of them like when they first got busted, and Mick was like, man, that was, and Keith is like, you were a fing when that happened, weren't you? <laughs> I knew you'd fuck. You know, they were, they were, I'm watching, I'm like, this is, this is great. Anyway, fast forward, you know, um, Will Calhoun calls me up to audition to do the Living Color gig. I got Charlie Watson and him saying, man, Dougie, this would be great for you, you know what I mean? But I still had to audition. Came and came, flew in, did the audition out of Fairness State. You know, they auditioned a few other folks and, 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 and they were like, listen, we got a gig in, um, and um, in Brazil, with us on the books, we want to make a change. We want, out of fairness to everybody, let's audition everybody. No problem. So I should have knew something was going on because when I flew back into into New York from London, I flew into a hurricane. <laughs> it was a hurricane that was omens and signs. Omens and signs. But anyway, I went there, did it. They called me back. We want you to do the gig in Brazil. Did that? Boom. Got the gig. Did the record. Everything. Okay. Fast forward. Now, Bill Wyman leaves the group. So, you know, Mick calls, I'm like the lucky, you know, they're auditioning again. They're auditioning again. So I'm like, okay, but I'm in Living Color at the time. I just joined Living Color, <laughs> right? Yeah. I just joined Living Color. I'm a, I'm a couple, you know, about a year or so in on that cycle of that. And then um, Mick calls me up, he's like, Dougie, can you come to Ireland? We want to meet over at Ronnie Wood's house. I already did Ronnie Wood's album over there. I had a bass amp over there still and shit. I didn't even have to bring my bass because I used Woody's Fender. And uh, so I go over there, cool. It wasn't an audition. We just went right in and started recording. Must have cut 20 tracks. It was no audition with the Stones. I'm, what record I'm, was it? Or just it was just demos. the meeting for me gotcha. to get together to be with the Stones. But I'm like, Mick knew I was already with, with Living Color. You know what I mean? So then he's like, I get back home. And then I'm like, I get a call. And then it's like, okay, Dougie, it's Mick. He said, listen, um, I want you to come in. I want you to do the record with us. I said, well, when is the record? When do you want me to cut the record? He said, um, it was in October of what, 90, 
three or something like that. They had already auditioned all the other all the other bass player, Daryl Jones already. He'd already he'd already did it. I said, okay, hmm. Well, Living Color, we have a tour in Australia at that time. <laughs> she said, well, how much is Living Color getting for the tour? He was going to buy the tour to buy him out. He's going to give a check to Bernard Fowler to deliver it to you guys. You know that, right? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know. Ask Bernard. But then I said, you know, there was some difficulties going on. I said, well, listen, do me a favor. Call Vernon up. <laughs> That's right. He called you up, right? Do you remember talking to me? I remember him trying. I know. I, I ain't gonna, I ain't gonna, it was some darker days at that particular time. But anyway, to sum it all up, I'm a very loyal person. You made your commitment. I made my commitment. It, here's, the, here's the bottom line. The bottom line is you're an employee with the Rolling Stones. Okay? Yeah. I came in and I was given a quarter of the deed to the land with Living Color. And songwriting and everything, and everything else. With it. So my vibe was, I'm a I'm a very loyal person. I don't believe in like just jumping and jumping and doing that like that. You know, I'm, you know, there's there's a certain amount of loyalty. Other cats would have did it like that. Mm-hmm. That's not in my DNA. But so, obviously, you made the right choice. You're still well, here. I believe in the band. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and I don't know why I'm still here. <laughs> I do. Last question. When I saw you guys last was on the stadium when you guys were playing at WrestleMania for CM Punk yeah. Cult of Personality. That was a, it must have been a huge, maybe not a boost for you guys, but a huge way to get your music out to a completely different audience. How did that come to be where well, Punk was know, using your thing, song? The thing that's so funny about that, talking to to CM Punk, and he told me a story. He said, you know what? When I was in Little League, Cult of Personality, he was 12 years old. Yeah. And Cult of Personality was their get out on the field music. Mm. And so he had a, just a complete connection to the song and to the band from when he was 12. And that's how that came up. Mm. He was like, it. Could you imagine little Phil running out on the field? But it's also very little rare Phillip. for for Vince McMahon to allow uh, uh, you know yeah, a, a, an actual time. recorded song from another band to be used. That's the first one. The first time the one X. of the first time. There's been a few here and Static there. Static X. They used one. The, 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 yes, yeah. and Undertaker used the Kid Rock song. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. It's pretty rare to to have it for such a long period of time as he did. Yeah, man, he's crazy. He's a real fan. He's a really special dude. And That's cool. we're happy, you know, uh, we really wish him well. Yeah, man. And, you know, and, his uh, endeavors. Maybe he'll use Call the Personality in the UFC. Maybe. Right? Maybe. Maybe. But, but he's a good dude, and, and that was really a lot of fun. Will, what's your favorite Living Color song to play? To play live? Yeah. Time's up. Time's up? Yeah. Nice. It's a thrasher. Yeah, I like yeah. that. It's got nice changes. It's drum-oriented. Yeah, for sure. Um, How you run? Once again, the giant snare drum. <laughs> on the road. New traffic circle coming soon. How about you, Vernon? Your favorite? Me? Movie? My favorite? My favorite living color song to play. I actually have to say Cult of Personality. And that's, and that's partly because the writing of Cult of Personality, you know, is how it happened. It's like, it, it, it's not connected to the song, the song being a hit. But it's connected to the fact that we used to have this loft in Williamsburg. We had a rehearsal, and at the beginning of that rehearsal, there was no cult of personality. At the end of the rehearsal, the song was written, and we played it at the very next CBGB's gig, mm. and the response to it was immediate. And that, to me, is like ex- exemplifies us being out of the way, because mm-hmm. it's easy to be in the way of the music. And it was like, we were there, 
but the song wrote itself using us right. as components as the conduits, yeah. of its own creation. Right. We kind of didn't stop it from happening. And which is one of these amazing Just moments. Just a perfect example of kismet it's falling a, it's together. A, it's, yeah. a, it's an amazing moment. Like nothing interrupted it. Nothing took it sideways. None of us tried to seize what it was. It just, we, it all happened. I had the lyrics in my red, my old red notebook, and it just kind of. And I wrote the the thing as a poem. Mm -hmm. Look in my eyes. What do you see? The cult of personality. I had no music for it. I just wrote it. We came up with this thing, this riff. I said, "We'll play a beat to this." You know, Corey was singing something to me. I stumbled on the. Blah, 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 blah. I said, "Dude!" And it it's, was just, it's it's very much a, it's very much a product of our personality. Literally, our personalities, like uh, how we all came about getting to it. Like we, what Will puts to the song is Will's personality in terms of how the beat is directed, how the guitar is done is is strictly you know a Vernon Reed. Whatever the fuck Fuction, that is, riff, whatever weirdness, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, 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 that the that the melody, as it, as it is, is very much what 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 I do, and the, the bass playing was obviously when, when Muzz was in the band was Muzzy, and we didn't stop doing that. We just kept going at it and it going. Oh, it, 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 we just it just kind of came in layers. Mm -hmm. It just kind of we, we had that one riff. It has to go somewhere. So then we kind of went there, and I was thinking, and really, like even the chords, really, I was imitating my friend Raymond Jones. Well, my, he was a keyboard player. He played with Sheik. He's he's no longer with us, rest in peace. But he had a way of playing the piano with voice leading. Mm -hmm. I was really imitating on guitar vibe, yeah. the way this friend of mine mm -hmm. used to. You know, he would just. He's kind of like influenced by Todd Rundgren. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of like like the songs from the, the Hermit of Mink Hollow and things. There's, you know, Raimi said, man, listen to Top Room, how he moves his chords, his triads around. And so I was kind of like, oh, this is, sounds like something, you know. So all of those sorts of things kind of came together and yeah. it just kind of. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Doug? What's your favorite one to play live? I think um, for me, it's very interesting. I got to tell you a little back. So you know how they say things happen in threes. Well, I got a call from Will. Bruce Springsteen and Seal all in the same week to do something with them. And I always go with whoever the first thing was. So I said, okay, <laughs> I'm going to go with Living Color because they're my mates, right? Yeah. So I had a little bit of time to, to figure out the stuff, the songs for it was just a couple of, couple of days, really. You know, I had to come in to do this audition. I said, okay, shit. So I knew Colt, uh, Colt was okay. I figured that would be all right. I said, what I usually do in a situation like that, I pick the hardest song to learn first. And that song was uh, Time's Up. Mm -hmm. So when I came to rehearsal, the guys asked me, okay, what do you want to do? What's the first song you want to do? I said, let's do Time's Up. And I can look at everybody's face, and they all kind of stopped and paused. <laughs> you know why? You know why I got to interrupt? That's the one song none of the bass players wanted to play. Wow. Everybody who came to the audition said, I'll do any song, but not Time's Up. Not that so when you said that, that's what made us kind of go, damn. <laughs> right. I had to say that. Because right. <laughs> you know what's a funny story about that? When Metallica got, was going for a new bass player, it's Robert Trujillo, great player. Yeah. Yeah. He did the same thing with the song Battery. Right. None of the other guys could play it properly. And his first one was like, what do you want to play? I'll play Battery. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's what you do. And you nail it with that's the top one, do, right? Man. Yeah. That's it. That's it, man. How about you, Corey? Last one? Favorite song? The ears went back in between. They did. <laughs> Especially as a singer too, because you're having a good night or, or a so-so night. Yeah, I, it, it's it. It depends on how I'm feeling that that night. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there's times when we do uh, 
Desperate People. That is great just, tune. Like maybe my favorite Living Color it's, tune. It's Desperate it's people. fun to play. But there's a there's a part in in, in Desperate People as a singer is at the top of my range mm-hmm. before I go to falsetto. That's difficult to do, and I'm thinking about that all the time when do, doing when trying to get to that. Part. I know it's coming. I know yeah, it's coming. Yeah, yeah. So it's like I get up for it to just, just to, for for that particular song. And then the other nights it's like, it, let's just go. And you want to do stuff like go away, and you want to do stuff like postman. Great you tune, do, go away. That's you want to you want to do stuff like times up because it's just like I'm at heart like a little skater punk kid, you know that listens to that kind of mm. shit, you know. And that's that. Th- those kind of songs kind of fit into that kind of thing. Right, right, right. Guys, it's been great talking to you, man. We could talk man. for another two hours if we wanted to, <laughs> man. So thank you, guys. Chris, thank, thank you, so guys. Much. Yeah, you. Thank you so much, yeah. man. All right, Living Color are headed to Australia for the first time since 2014. The tour starts May 12th in Melbourne. If you live down under, if you live in London down under, go see the show. You can buy tickets at livingcolor.com and pick up a copy of their new mixtape EP, Who Shot Ya, featuring three new songs from the Shade recording sessions. Thanks to all four members of Living Color. They're very uh, intelligent and a great, great rock and roll band. Uh, and what a cool thing. All four members of a band on Talk is Jericho. That's a first. I loved it. Uh, thank you so much to Living Color. If you're digging their music, or all the musical guests on Talk is Jericho, like Living Color, Devin Townsend, Cheap Trick, Kenny G, Lars Ulrich, Tony Iommi, then sign up for the automated email alert so that you never miss a single guest. Okay? Podcast1.com slash Jericho. Be a part of the Talk is Jericho army. Sign up at podcast1.com slash Jericho, and you'll get all the information uh, right to your email. Big thanks to you for doing that and thanks for supporting all the Talk is Jericho sponsors. Couldn't do this without you or them and that includes Amazon, the OG sponsor. Easiest way to help out this show. Use my Amazon links whenever you do any online shopping. You find all my Amazon links at podcast1.com. Click on the Killer Deals button at the top right corner of the page, then hit the Talk is Jericho button. Got the Amazon links for the USA, the UK, the Canada. Eh? Every time you buy something on uh, on Amazon, use those Talk is Jericho Amazon links and Amazon kicks back a small percentage to this show to help us cover production costs. You buy anything you want, just help us out. Like I said, podcast1.com. Click on the Killer Deals button in the top right corner of the page, UAG, then hit the Talk is Jericho button. All the other sponsors are on there as well. ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. Get 25% off all DDPY merch. And when you buy a max pack or a combo pack, you get a second one for 50% off the price. It's already 25% off. All right. And don't forget, March 15, 2017, it's the biggest podcast ever. When Mick Foley joins Talk is Jericho, the countdown rolls on 33 days and counting. And if it's more big podcasts you're looking for, the Jericho Network has you covered. We're about to launch another new show very soon. But until then, you got Keeping It 100 with Conan, Killing the Town with Storm and Cyrus, Beyond the Darkness five days a week, Team Tiger Awesome with hilarious pop culture uh, reviews and analysis every Sunday. Right now they've got uh, Movie Monsters versus Movie Children. Who do you think is going to win? I think it's like, you know, Kevin from Home Alone versus uh, Freddy Krueger. Go check it out. They're hilarious. Go hit the subscribe button on iTunes for all the great Jericho Network podcasts on Podcast One and leave them all a rating and a review. Thanks for listening. Keep listening for the 60-second AP News headlines coming up next. And on Friday, you've been asking for this one. Back by popular demand, it's Talkin' Shop 5, live in Mexico, presented by Talk is Jericho, hosted by Carl Anderson and, of course, Luke Gallows with the rotating fourth. 
Enzo Amore. That's right. All your faves are going to be there as well. Reptile, Gordy Canuck, The Fink, The Hell Yeah Man, Sam Adonis is going to be there from Mexico. Total debauchery with some great wrestling stories mixed in. Uh, Gallows did this entire show with a coffee cup bounced on his head just to show you where we were at. And we're back again on Friday. Don't you dare miss it. Until then, in the meantime and in between time, stay hard, stay hungry, peace, love, and hugs, and a big yeah boy. See you on Friday. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com.